Oh, hello. Welcome to Trained Body and Mind, a podcast exploring the cutting edge of holistic fitness. I'm your host, Jacqueline Beyer. Each episode, I connect with the world's leading experts and athletes to talk about mindset, movement, nutrition, recovery, and sleep, what we like to call the five facets of fitness. We're in the midst of our mini-series on mental health. Last time, we heard from Dr. Jennifer Heiss about the profound effects of fitness on the mind. Today, we're talking about the profound effect of food on our mood. And while we might eat to achieve healthier bodies and a stronger performance, I don't think many of us count on food for mental health gains. But once you start diving into the research, it puts a whole new spin on eating your feelings. In the gut microbiome are 39 trillion microbes of different types. And they're there to really help us thrive, help us with our sleep, circadian rhythm, hormones, vitamin production, immunity, and so much more. They also help with mental health. In order for them to thrive, they need to be fed. So if you're feeding them healthier meals, fiber, good nutrients, full of antioxidants, your gut thrives, and you continue on a healthy path. But if you're feeding them fast foods, processed foods, junk foods, a lot of added refined sugars, then the bad microbes thrive and they overcome the good microbes. That's Dr. Uma Naidu, who's got a really interesting resume. She studied psychiatry at Harvard, she's a professionally trained chef, and she's combined them into one career as a nutritional psychiatrist. Her focus is the intersection of diet and mental health, and she took all of her knowledge and wrote the book, This Is Your Brain on Food. Dr. Naidu isn't urging us to follow some specific program. There's no need to count macros. Mostly, she's asking us to add stuff to our diet to help reduce anxiety and depression, to widen our palates, try out fermented foods, toss some turmeric into dishes. And she'll tell you exactly why, too. For what it's worth, I used my little guy as a test subject, and it worked out pretty well. I've been very, very excited to tell you what I ate for lunch today. I had your mushroom and spinach frittata. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> yeah, I have to give credit to my mom, though, because she'll want to make sure everybody knows that she made it. <laughs> We're visiting my side of the family for Thanksgiving, and I brought your book. And everybody really has been fighting over it the whole time. Even my son, who is three years old, he carried it over to me the other night. And he said, Mom, can you read the food book to me? And he got really excited when he recognized some of the food that you had mentioned. Oh, I love that. Mm-hmm. He did ask for more bananas and for more trucks. <laughs> Next time, we'll make some edible trucks in there. I love it. Okay, so Dr. Naidu, you are a Harvard-trained psychiatrist and you're a professional chef. And this might feel like two very different career paths, but you managed to make a day job out of both of them. So I'm wondering, how exactly do you explain what you do to people? I think the best way to explain it is I was always inspired to do things that I love. And I started with my parents encouraging me. But that was also with the cultural backdrop of growing up in a large South Asian family, being surrounded by my grandparents during the day when my mom was at medical school. And so they taught me yoga, meditation. I would watch my grandmother and help her, you know, pluck fresh vegetables from the garden, watch her cook and help her, but also sit down to a family meal. I loved mental health. I loved working with people in medicine. It was just a very obvious choice. But I also found when I identified that I enjoyed mental health that there was a real gap in, in the way that we were working with individuals because we were very fast and still are to pull out a prescription pad. 
And I definitely believe in therapy and all forms of therapy are excellent. But I felt like we needed to be exploring more about what we were asking patients. And it led me to, you know, have an aha moment early on in my career with a patient who was accusing me of causing him to gain weight. And when I was able to identify the empty calories he was consuming in his Dunkin' Donuts coffee, because he was putting a ton of processed cream and a ton of added sugar, it was a powerful moment because it taught me that he felt the power to change something by having the knowledge and that I was able to share that knowledge because I knew something about nutrition. And it really helped me decide to take a much deeper dive into studying nutrition and understanding that, but also being able to interpret that. Mm -hmm. Culinary school came later. And when I discovered that Julia Child is my food hero, that she was actually known for her second career, I really thought, why not me? I was very fortunate that those different areas came together. So in a short definition, mm-hmm. nutritional psychiatry is the use of healthy whole foods and nutrients to improve our mental well-being, and it does not exclude the use of medications or other forms of therapy that you might be doing. Got it. And was there a moment that you realized that there was a link between food and mental health? Was it that loaded Dunkin' Donuts coffee moment? Was it sometime before then? That was always in the background of my mind and, and how I lived my life. The moment taught me the power of sharing information with the patient and doctors. Just We just do not learn nutrition. Some medical schools do a better job than others, but for the most part, we really don't learn enough. So when we're asked to counsel someone, we don't really know. You know, we can give guidelines and, and some guidance around food based on our knowledge of biology and what we've studied, but it really isn't a deeper dive. And that, to me, was very powerful when I was able to sit him down and he was able to identify that he was just wasting calories. And he was then able to affect change in his life. It sounds like you also care about this a lot on a personal level based on the way that you were raised. If you don't mind me asking, did you ever struggle with mental health yourself at some point in your life that led you personally to search for a new way of feeling better? I was fortunate not to have had those struggles, but when I was diagnosed with breast cancer and the first day of my treatment, I found myself so anxious and it was a foreign feeling to me and a real life lesson for me. It's not good for my body. It's not good for me. And the thing that I can do is really lean into what I know. And so I unexpectedly became my own almost test subject where I decided that I was going to make those changes, lean more into knowing good foods and good nutrition that I could be using. And it made a huge difference to how I was feeling, to lowering my anxiety, to helping my sleep. And one of the things my doctors would ask me every single week before my chemo treatment was, what are you eating? What are you doing? We know that you're doing something different because you have no side effects. Your blood tests are great. You're physically well. We're very happy about that. But we also know you talk all the time about what you're eating. So they were really curious. It's very painful and very different to be in the patient role and very humbling because it really teaches you how a patient would feel. But at the same time, I decided to really use what I knew and that helped me. And I was happy to know that. And that was very cool to read about in your book. This is your brain on food. There's a lot in our health that can be out of control, but there's a lot that's in our control. 
And that's why I've been really excited to have this conversation with you just to talk about what it is we can do with the power of food. So getting back to nutritional psychiatry, can you talk about how new this field is? It feels like it's still sort of just coming into form. Absolutely. And and it is a nascent field, but one that is growing very rapidly. And really what brought it forward would be that, you know, in the last decade and a half, the science of the microbiome has come forward and really burgeoned. One of the things that I think helps us understand and unpack this for people is that there's this gap in our mental health. And the gap is as follows. We talk to our doctors about type 2 diabetes, weight gain during COVID, family history of hypertension, should I be eating differently for my cholesterol level? But we're not talking about food in relation to our mental health. People report brain fog, they'll report feeling cloudy, not being able to focus, not sleeping well, feeling sluggish, just not having energy, feeling very fatigued, having a cup of coffee and feeling so jittery that they can't cope. They're talking about it all the time, but we're not making that connection. Mm -hmm. And that's the niche that nutritional psychiatry fills, helping people to understand body intelligence, which is one of the pillars I talk about in nutritional psychiatry, Mm -hmm. paying attention to how you feel and then interpreting and understanding how you can tweak that to feel better or to change that uncomfortable feeling. I think that it's a powerful tool to understand that nutrition as a lifestyle measure, that there's a lot of power at the end of our fork and we have the the ability to change things around and improve things because none of us is a perfect eater to feel emotionally better. Mm -hmm. And of course, naturally, physical ailments and conditions will improve as well. Why do you think it is that the medical field hasn't fully acknowledged that connection between the mind and food until recently, or that there's been a relatively slow adoption by the healthcare industry with this? If you think about nutritional science and the studies and the funding that goes into that, there isn't an impetus for there to be funding around something that's going to take money away from pharmaceutical companies. So I think there's almost a natural tendency for there to be a certain blind spot around the power of nutrition for that reason. And I think it's something we need to think about. Yeah, absolutely. Do you think that the more research scientists are able to do, the more we learn, the more findings we have, do you think that'll have an effect or does it really, in your opinion, just come down to budget? When you understand the power of education and the knowledge that someone can then use, I think that's a very powerful ground roots way to affect this because it's hard to take on big pharma. It's hard to take on the food industry. It's hard mm-hmm. to reverse industrialization that has happened in this country and the food system. That doesn't mean we have to agree with it. And it does mean that we can empower ourselves in a way to eat better, eat healthier, be aware, have knowledge of food labels, have knowledge of grams of sugar, have knowledge of hidden sugars, have knowledge of where the junk processed foods are, Mm -hmm. that we can cut back on a limit. That to me is the best way to move ourselves forward in this movement by educating ourselves, helping to educate one another, teaching our children, healthy eating habits. I love the story about your your child, (laughs) Um, you know, but just having that conversation from early on. Mm -hmm. So we understand that we can make better choices. So let's do some of that. Let's get into some of the science. Let's get into some of the specific foods. I think everyone listening is really here for that. You know, we talked about some of the studies generally. I think more and more are coming out associating certain diets or foods with mental health issues such as depression and anxiety. 
Is it possible for you to summarize those findings? Like, what do we know about how food affects some mental health issues? So one of the things we know is that there are many nutrients and ingredients that actually help mood and help anxiety. But we also need to understand there are many things that we might be eating that we don't realize are impacting our mental health. Because most of the time in the United States, especially, we're thinking about our waistline Mm -hmm. and whether we're gaining weight. And we're forgetting something that's quite obvious, which is it could also be worsening other symptoms like our mental health. For example, processed vegetable oils often found in fast food restaurants because it's inexpensive, but it's pro-inflammatory. So it's driving the inflammation in your body. That is the one that stresses me out the most. I look at everything, turn the package over, look at the label of ingredients. I'm like, dang it, more vegetable oils in here. Like, How do you find stuff that doesn't use them? Exactly. And people should understand that fast food french fries have added sugars because the research and development has informed the food industry and the fast food companies that that's what makes those french fries hyperpalatable. Mm-hmm. One of the things that people don't realize, most of the artificial sweeteners and things like soda or low-sugared products actually worsen things like anxiety and are disruptive to the gut microbiome. And then there are foods you can lean into. I think people are very tired of hearing about the Mediterranean diet. And I don't say that to slight it because it generally has some really good principles. But why not we think about what it's telling us and what other diets are telling us. You know, it's talking about really leaning into plant foods, beans, legumes, vegetables. In terms of fruit, I like berries because they lower glycemic in mental health, and that's important. Chia seeds, flax seeds, all of the seeds and nuts and lentils and healthy whole grains that are great for us. Healthy oils, so avocados, extra virgin olive oil, And, you know, the omega-3s, plant-based as well as seafood sources, you build it out from their clean sources of protein. Rather than people argue about whether they should eat beef, seafood, or chicken, why not just choose a good source of where you're getting those from? Mm -hmm. Whatever you're doing, tweak it in a healthier direction. And I feel that that gives you the power because most of my patients come in asking, do I eat this or do I eat that? Do I give up this or do I give up that? And that type of diet culture is what sets us up for failure. And that makes our nutrition changes not be sustainable for us. I think we're all wired to just want a list of do this and don't do this. And that feels easier. Mm -hmm. But I think the benefit of what you're saying here is really that there's a lot of freedom and a lot of opportunity for personalization. And it's more about listening to your body and more about quality and finding what works for you over time. You know, the lists are easy, right? At the end of Each chapter of my book, there are lists of foods to embrace and those to avoid or cut back on. So if you want the checklist, it's meant for you to take a photograph with your iPhone and follow from there. You're talking a lot about what we're eating. I'm curious if how we're eating plays a role in this too, like our environment, our pace, who we're eating with, when we eat, and things like that. Does that also affect our mental health? Absolutely. I also believe in context of eating. I had the worst nutrition habits when I was a resident and a medical student, running around, eating on the fly, not sitting, not having any sense of mindfulness. You really learn from that. So that becomes important. Eating with your family or eating with friends. And if you live alone, maybe getting on a Zoom to enjoy a meal with someone so that you have that companionship. And so of the things that you just mentioned, I think mindful eating might be the one that's hardest for people to kind of figure out how to actually do that. Do you have any quick tips for how someone might want to sit down and have a mindful meal or a mindful eating experience? Absolutely. And 
I happen to enjoy. I love cooking. Not everyone enjoys it, mm-hmm. but maybe find something that you like about it. So whether it's you putting together salad or you're baking something in the oven, whatever it is you're doing, be part of that experience. Be in the experience. You know, the expression, be where your feet are. It's sort of, if you're thinking about checking your text messages and watching what's on the news as you're preparing, I think that gets not only distracting, it takes you away from the process. So it starts there and then finding a place that you can sit down, finding a space in your home uh, or at your place of work if you have to work and eat your meal, your break room, wherever that is, where you can actually sit and savor the food, you know, smell the aroma. What is it that you're eating? Appreciate the colors. Almost teach yourself to walk through that instead of mindlessly watching the television, which many of us do, trying to gobble down your dinner. You're not really tasting the food. And there's studies associated with you don't feel satiated, you know, because you've eaten so fast that your hunger cues haven't had a chance to catch up. Do you know what is wild about this is that I'm seeing this with my son. So he's three. And sometimes the last thing he wants to do is eat because he just wants to play or run around or whatever. (laughs) If you give him a cookie, of course, he'll scarf that down. But anything else, he's like, ah, there's something else I'd rather be doing. But if (laughs) I am desperate for him to eat, I'll turn the TV on and feed him in front of the TV and he'll eat a full meal. And I feel guilty for doing it because I'm like, this is terrible. I shouldn't be feeding him in front of the TV and creating these habits. But then I'm also like, I need this kid to eat some food and I'm desperate to get it in him. So it's a hard balance. The cool thing is the brain can change. There's neuroplasticity, so you can teach him new habits, mm-hmm. teach him new things that he can do, maybe involve him in food prep later on so that he experiences that as fun, mm-hmm. the colors of vegetables or you know whatever it is that entices him to engage him in that way. Yep, for sure. So I would love for you just to give us kind of a taste of what's in your book. If you could share how certain foods might benefit someone who's feeling anxiety versus other foods that might benefit somebody who's dealing with depression? Sure. So let's take anxiety first. I always like to say for anxiety, fiber is your friend and high fiber foods, things like beans, berries, fruit, um, nuts, um, you know, healthy whole grains. And why is that? Because fiber rich foods are more fiber dense. They break down more slowly in your body compared to a time when you might eat a sugary donut And you may, you know, have that sugar spike and then wonder why by the time you get to work, you are hungry again. A high fiber food will actually keep you more satiated over a longer period of time as it breaks down more slowly in your body, but also doesn't have you having these spikes, which can sometimes cause a lot of anxiety as well. Fermented foods, a great study published in Cell, which is a very reputable journal in summer of this year from a research group in Stanford, found that fermented foods help to lower inflammation in the gut. And that's very significant because inflammation is seen as an underlying cause of many mental health conditions, including cognitive problems, anxiety, depression, and more. There's miso, there's tempeh, apple cider vinegar, there's pickled vegetables, there's kefir, kimchi. My only guidance around these is try to get them from the refrigerated section because the fermentation process matters. And then vitamin D-rich foods. So for anxiety, things like mushrooms, one of the highest vegetarian sources of vitamin D, those fatty fish like salmon, and then lean into those B vitamins, and then magnesium. So magnesium is associated with anxiety. and You don't have to take a supplement. You can eat avocado. A quarter piece of avocado a day is actually a good portion. Some nuts and seeds, 
black beans, dark chocolate, and then spices, things like turmeric with a pinch of black pepper are really, really good to help with your anxiety. So those are some foods to tap into and there are many, many more lists in the book. And then depression, some of the studies around depression looked at prebiotic foods, which help with the gut microbiome, probiotics, which could be a supplement, but I'd, I'd rather point you towards fermented food sources, then spices, saffron and turmeric with a pinch of black pepper, those omega-3s from fatty fish or plant-based sources, uh, chia seeds, flax seeds, walnuts, and herbs like oregano, lavender, all were helpful. So these are things that you can tap into. All right. So we covered foods that you should eat for anxiety and depression specifically. What about just a couple of foods that you might want to avoid, particularly for both of those? Mm-hmm. So the things that you want to be aware of is those added refined sugars. Think of pasta sauce, salad dressing, ketchup, and the processed vegetable oil. What's your favorite oil for cooking at home? Sure. So I use avocado oil and I use extra virgin olive oil are my two favorites. And occasionally I'll use uh, clarified butter, which is ghee for you know traditional Indian cooking. On the flip side of all of this, we're talking about what to eat, what not to eat. What does deprivation, like skipping meals or skipping snacks, what does that do to your mental health? One of the things that I often will hear people say is, oh, I'm going out for a big dinner tonight or I'm going out for dinner. So I'm skipping meals during the day and I'm just sipping on tea and having something very light. What tends to happen is your, your body needs to be fed on a regular basis. And so you end up ravenously hungry when you get to the dinner and you're more likely to make poorer choices, drink more alcohol if you consume alcohol and you sort of almost reverse probably what your intention was, was to enjoy the meal and save on some calories during the day. Rather eat small healthy snacks during the day, a light salad, tap into those vegetables which can help you and then still enjoy a balanced meal when you go up. You mentioned drinking coffee or drinking alcohol. Those are two things that you talk about a lot in your book. How might caffeine and alcohol affect your mind? So, you know, caffeine is a healthy substance for your body and for your brain. The issue is uh, two things with caffeine. It's not does not work for everyone. So some people with anxiety feel very jittery when they drink caffeine. That's not for them. And that's paying attention to body intelligence. Studies have shown that consuming 400 milligrams or less is usually okay. But again, I've had people have a little bit, even a half calf and feel a little jittery. And for them, we have to help them cut back on it. The other problem is what you add to it. If you're adding a ton of processed junk to it, a lot of sugar, that's different compared to black coffee or finding a healthier way to consume it. Mm -hmm. With alcohol, it's not that different. I prefer to think of it this way, Jacqueline. Most people consume alcohol. So why not give people guidance around how to do that in moderation? So Mm -hmm. enjoy that glass of wine, alternate with a glass of water if you're at a holiday party and limit yourself to what you can tolerate and have clean cocktails with less added stuff and pace yourself. When we come back from the break, Dr. Naidu talks about spicing up our diet, eating the colors of the rainbow, keeping the joy in food, and she gives us the official okay for Pizza Friday.
I'm sure you hear this a lot, people talking about making a food choice based on a craving, something that they think their mind or their body is telling them. What's going on there? Do you think cravings are telling us what our body needs? So, you know, it can be a little bit confusing because there's certainly uh, times when people may be missing a certain mineral or vitamin and they're looking for a certain kind of food. So there's a natural process in the body. But for the most part, when people are talking to me about cravings, it's usually for something sort of unhealthy. To get through the pandemic, you know, they've bought a tub of ice cream and, and that's something they go to every evening. There are a couple of things going on. Stress um, precipitates habit circuits in the brain. So when we are stress eating, we are actually tapping into something that then starts a vicious cycle in our body. So our body goes back to need it, to crave it, to want it. The other factor is that we know from research that things like added refined sugars tap into the dopamine reward system in the brain. Similar pathway for drugs like cocaine. So, you know, sometimes it's a strong description to say I'm addicted to sugar, but in fact, there's real science behind that. So one of the things with cravings, we we need to understand what's going on. We need to have a little bit of a mindful moment and try to help ourselves figure that out. And I know it's easier said than done, but bringing ourselves to awareness is very important because if not, we just go back to those habits and we precipitate those stress circuits and, and we just continue doing the same thing. So we need to figure out how to walk ourselves back from that. Yeah, you're making me think of a moment that made me realize that connection there. I broke my ankle during a race a few years ago, and I was feeling really sorry for myself. The first few days, I was hobbling around on crutches in New York City in a cast. Couldn't work out. I was like really into racing. I was loving going and getting my daily dose of exercise every day. And I remember giving myself permission to just order like a really indulgent comfort food meal because I felt like that was going to make me feel better. I was scrolling through the app trying to find like, what kind of greasy thing can I order? And nothing looked good except there was a new vegan restaurant around the corner that opened and everything looked good there. I ordered from that restaurant and I think it was a real light bulb moment for me where I felt like I heard my body telling me it needed that nutritious food to heal my injury a little bit faster. And so I pretty much gave up meat and fish on the spot and I've been a vegetarian since then. And I realized this is a physical example and we're focusing on mental health today, but I'm wondering if there is science or research that shows similar to when the body isn't well, when the mind is mentally ill, does it ask for more nutritious foods or certain foods in general, or in particular, depending on what that illness might be? With depression, anxiety, and many other conditions, more often than not, the brain is giving off the message towards, I would say, unhealthier choices. Mm -hmm. So sometimes people with a mood disorder may gain weight. Sometimes we may lose weight because they're so distraught that they're not eating. So it's really variable. I want to talk a little bit more about, quote, bad food and how maybe it might make you feel good in the moment. And I'll use another personal example here, though I'm probably a little worried about what your (laughs) answer might be. But every Friday night, my family makes pizza. Sometimes we make the dough. We always make the sauce. We grow basil and some veggies in our backyard. We make a pie or two. And the idea of Pizza Friday, it's something we look forward to all week. We usually have a beer, a glass of wine, sometimes two. It's a pretty indulgent night. There's a lot of cheese, but again, we're vegetarians. We don't do meat. Is that a false sense of mental health? The idea that maybe a ritual around food can potentially override any negative effects of something like eating pizza regularly? So I think there are two things here that are important. I think eating together with the family, making food from scratch together, making your own pasta sauce, so you're controlling the sugar that's going in, 
Because you don't have to add sugar when you're making it yeah. at home. And we don't. Um, right, because you, you <laughs> rely on the sweetness of the tomatoes. Making your own dough, making your own crust, very different from a processed frozen pizza that you buy in the frozen section in the supermarket. If you look at the food label, tons of ingredients that you don't recognize, has colorants, food preservatives, dyes, the wrong types of oil and fat. So totally different food product. That's the first thing. The second is food is also joy. And so I think that having the ritual or family get together or something that everyone looks forward to, there's no harm in that. There are times that, you know, your child will go to birthday party and there will be cupcakes. So there's also not wanting them to be in a restrictive mode where they hear no and then they crave that or want that food more, right? So it's, mm-hmm. it's all of these balances at all ages that we experience. The rest of the time, it sounds like your family eats healthy. You enjoy that meal together. You have fun. It's sort of winding down after the week. I think the emotional offset of that is very, very important. Interestingly, studies have also shown that when people are regretful when they eat something, that actually prevents the absorption of some of the better nutrients. So some of the way to think about this is, you know, enjoy it and move on. The other thing is try a cauliflower pizza crust. Ooh, yeah, we could do that. Totally. Increase your veggies. And that's what I prefer to do is take something that a person is doing and say, hey, did you think of this? Could you do that? So that they still enjoy it. Because the last thing I want to do is take away the joy around food because that's really where we get ourselves in trouble. Yeah. And we go down a a sad path of depriving ourselves and then it never ends up in a good way for us. You know, I hear what you're saying about the process of making it and it's more about that because there will be Friday nights every now and then where we're just beat and we're like, it's pizza night, let's order a pizza. And we never quite feel the same. I don't feel regret, but I do recognize the difference in the joy of the process of making pizza night as a family versus just, you know, ordering a pizza. Mm-hmm. I want to shift now to talk a little bit more. You went into this a little bit earlier, the gut brain axis. The gut is referred to as the second brain. Can you explain what that means? Sure. So, you know, it starts off with understanding how the gut and brain are connected because most people wouldn't think that that's the case where they're far apart in the body, but it turns out they originate from the exact same cells in the body when we're developing as little embryos. And so the gut and brain start from the same cells. They divide up and form two organs. Then they remain connected anatomically, physiologically, biochemically throughout our lives by the 10th cranial nerve, the vagus nerve, which is really a two-way messenger. So it's bidirectional and allows for chemical messages to be transmitted between the brain and gut and the gut and brain. Add to that the fact that, you know, we call serotonin the happiness hormone. More than 90% of serotonin is made in the gut and more than 90% of the receptors are in the gut. Oh, wow. We know we put all of that together and we understand that there is this realistic connection. Now, as the food gets digested, think about it this way. In the gut microbiome are 39 trillion microbes of different types. And they're there to really help us thrive, help us with our sleep, circadian rhythm, hormones, vitamin production, immunity, and so much more. They also help with mental health. In order for them to thrive, they need to be fed. So if you're feeding them healthier meals, fiber, good nutrients, full of antioxidants. Your gut thrives and you continue on a healthy path. But if you're feeding them with fast foods, processed foods, junk foods, a lot of added and refined sugars, then the bad microbes thrive and they overcome the good microbes. When that happens, you get the setup for inflammation in the gut over time, a process called dysbiosis. 
and it can lead to conditions like leaky gut, otherwise called intestinal permeability. And the breakdown products when you're eating less healthy food are more toxic. And this whole connection is looped back to the brain. So when you have gut inflammation, ultimately it's going to loop back to brain inflammation. And you really do see an uptick of symptoms and mental health associated with that, a change in diet, a change in stress levels, change in eating pattern. So it's important to understand that this gut-brain connection actually helps us understand that food-mood connection. So if there are three to five things that someone could add to their diet to try to generally improve their mental health, what might those foods be? So I would lean into healthy assortment of vegetables of different colors. So eat the color of the rainbow and under the category of vegetables, they're rich in fiber, antioxidant, anti-inflammatory properties, and plant polyphenols. Sulfurophane-rich vegetables like cabbage, Brussels sprouts, cauliflower, those are really great for your gut, and they're low calories, so those are good ones to tap into. Now the category of spices, often ignored, and in my book I go into different spices that you can add and flavor up your food. They are calorie-free, sugar-free, salt-free. Mm-hmm. So up your spice game because that improves your mental well-being in a relatively easy way. The third category, often ignored, are fermented foods. Science is showing us that these are really good to fend off inflammation in the gut. If you're having a Buddha bowl or a salad or even a pizza, you know, there's no harm in adding on some interesting fermented food to that. Uh, A fourth category is prebiotic foods. So prebiotic foods feed fiber to those gut microbes and they are things like garlic, leeks, onions, bananas, jicama, so many more. I list them in my book. But these actually, again, nurture those gut microbes in a good way. The fifth category, I would say, are the omega-3s, fatty fish, like wild sockeye salmon, associated with improvement of mood, lowering of anxiety, plant-based sources, chia seeds, flax seeds, walnuts, sea algae are also good options. Ooh, algae. I always forget about that one. Okay. It is on my list. Definitely going to grab it next time I go shopping. Thank you for the reminder. So as I mentioned, this is the second chapter of the mental health mini series that we're doing. Last episode, we spoke with Jennifer Heiss about how movement affects mental health. And we know that you can feel those feel-good effects of exercise on your mood nearly instantly. How soon can somebody feel the benefits of eating well on their mental health? When people start to assume those healthier habits. They will often call me or email me a couple of days later and say, I'm feeling lighter. I'm sleeping better. Like I said, it's highly individualized, but people do notice a change. Technically, we know that many of these conditions do require us to do some gut healing of that gut microbiome. Usually we know that research tells us it takes about 28 days to really heal the gut, but people will start to feel better within a week, within a few days sometimes. I don't want that to be mistaken with the fact that if you're adding a little quarter teaspoon of turmeric with a pinch of black pepper to a super smoothie or a tea, it doesn't mean that the next day you're going to have an improved mood. You have to use these as ongoing healthy habits that you implement. But that is separate from sort of this feeling that people will describe to me that they're starting to almost notice their focus. I had a patient call me a month ago and say, I went to work the next day after adjusting things and incorporating things and meal planning the day before, and I was so much clearer in the afternoon. So there are some changes that we do notice. So I know we're running out of time with you. And again, in a couple more quick questions, hopefully. 
using all of the science that's available, your expertise in the space. You have created your own recipes. We talked about it, like that frittata that I had, and your own nutritional guidelines. And I'd love to hear just a little bit more about those. Can you quickly share what your six pillars of nutritional psychiatry are? I'll go through a few of them. One of them is eat the rainbow. And then another one is the greener, the better. So tap into those leafy greens because the leafy greens actually contain folate. And low folate levels are associated with depression. And then the 80-20 rule, 80% of the time you're eating a good diet that's good for you and good for your mind and your brain. And most of the time, you know, you'll go encounter something at work or at an event that, you know, may not be nutritionally perfect, but you can handle it because the rest of the time you're being consistent. It seems totally reasonable to me. Yeah, I think it's about being reasonable because I think that what gets us into trouble is hard and fast rules, which are very hard for people to maintain. And then body intelligence, we talked about that as well. Really start to notice how you feel. If you're eating a certain type of meal and you develop a headache, you know, pay attention to that because maybe associated with that actual type of food. Another one is be whole, eat whole. So I like to say, eat the orange, skip the store-bought orange juice because the orange has all the nutrients, vitamins, and fiber that you need. But the store-bought orange juice has the fiber stripped and often a lot of added sugars. And then the last one is consistency and balance are the key. So like I said, it's not a quick fix. We tend to be an impatient country, and often that leads us to a prescription pad. And I have nothing against you obtaining a prescription. I write prescriptions myself, but I do think we need to think about more tools. And the more consistently you're doing these, they start to set in as habits. And nutrition becomes part of your lifestyle versus something you do just to lose 10 pounds before an event. And then lastly, what about adding things to your diet that aren't food necessarily, like supplements, for example? Sure. So, you know, I feel there's a place for supplements. I am a food first person, so I'm going to talk to you about recipes. I'm going to ask you to try it like you did the frittata. I'm so delighted you enjoyed (laughs) that because there are ways to really use food consistently. But here's an example. Saffron is a spice that has a really good amount of evidence for improving depression. But when you cook with saffron, you use a few threads. It's very expensive. You are never going to be able to attain 15 milligrams that was used in the study. You can speak to your doctor about using a well-sourced saffron supplement. I live in the far northeast. And many people are deficient in vitamin D. So get your vitamin D level checked. That may be something in addition to food sources you might need to supplement. If you are vegan, not all vegans may want to do this, but they should check a vitamin B12 level. And if they need to supplement that, that may be something they speak to their doctor about. Your take is really just getting some blood work done, talking to your doctor before standing in the grocery store aisle yourself and making some decisions based on what you're reading on the bottles. Exactly. You know, test, don't guess, and tap into what your body might be needing. You know, you cannot supplement a bad diet. Mm -hmm. So if you're eating fast foods every single day, any number of supplements are not going to offset the processed nature of that food. Well, I'm really looking forward to trying more of your recipes. Awesome. It really feels approachable and simple, and I'm having fun sharing it with my family and sharing it with my friends. And I hope that this conversation does the same for everyone listening to. Share it with your family, share it with your friends. Like I said, we have a lot that we can take into our control, and food is one of those things, and that's really, really cool. So Dr. Naidu, what a pledge. Thank you for your wisdom, for your time, and for making everybody probably very hungry. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much, Jackie. It was lovely to talk with you. 
Wasn't that so reasonable? Everything Dr. Naidu recommends is science-backed, of course, but it also makes perfect sense. Eating a variety of whole foods gives us a diversity of nutrition that's good for our bodies and our minds. I mean, I feel calmer just knowing that high-fiber foods like whole grains and berries can reduce anxiety. And I'm totally craving fermented vegetables. The research on that is amazing. I'm also loving that wherever you fall on the nutritional spectrum, you can enhance the good stuff you already eat to benefit your mental health. If you're listening to this on a Friday, my family is probably testing out pizza with cauliflower crust. I'll raise a slice to you and your health. On the next episode, I'm talking with Kayla McBride, three-time WNBA All-Star team member and a player for the Minnesota Lynx. In May of 2020, Kayla publicly opened up about her struggles with depression and anxiety, and the world responded. Now she's got a powerful message for all of us about why it's okay to fall apart. This has been Trained. Talk to you soon. If you've enjoyed this episode of Trained, help us spread the word by rating and reviewing the podcast. That way we can keep making great episodes for you to listen to. And it helps other people find us too. If you've got a question for me or my guests or a topic you'd like to see covered, email me at trained at nike.com and I'll see what I can do. Thanks for listening to Trained. Just a reminder, always talk with your doctor before starting any training or nutrition program. The information we provide isn't a substitute for any medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. And the individual opinions expressed here are just that, opinions.